Well, this morning we are going to wrap up our series that we began together a few weeks ago entitled God's Not Dead. And uh, we have been talking about the idea, really just a simple idea, that if you're going to have a living faith, then you've got to believe in a living God, right? Your God has got to be alive. He can't be dead. He's got to be fully alive. And uh, if we have a living faith, then how many of you recognize that a living faith actually affects the way you live your life, right? A life-giving faith affects the way you live your life. And I am, uh, I'll be real honest with you, one of the most challenging, frustrating things that I see in my life as a pastor is people that have a profession of faith, but there's no action of faith where they begin to live out what they say they believe. And our profession is uh, very uh, weak and powerless unless it is coupled with a living action of faith. And uh, it's wonderful that we say we're Christians. It's another thing that we actually live out our Christianity in a way that changes our world, that affects the way we live, interact, the way we relate with people, the way we conduct our business, the way we handle our money, uh, and the way that we look at our lives, really stepping into a Christian or a biblical worldview where we begin to look at our lives through the lens of Scripture and by the Holy Spirit, begin to live our lives according to God's plan. And so that excites me when I see Christians stepping into that. When I see people go from a place of casual Christianity where it's just a profession, a profession of faith that I make on Sunday to a living faith where I begin to walk out what I say I believe Monday through uh, Saturday and begin to, to live out the, this thing called Christianity. That stirs my heart. And that's what this series is really all about. It's all about moving us to that place where we have a living faith because we serve a living God. Amen? So Genesis uh, chapter 16 has been our story that we've uh, kind of based uh, this whole concept of what we're talking about out of. The Bible says, and the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she replied. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. Therefore, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? And if you look at that first point, we just started out by simply saying, number one, God sees, God hears, and God speaks, right? And I love this story because in this little story, just a few verses, we kind of get that holistic picture of a living God, right? God sees. Hagar says, the Lord our God sees. And not only does he see, he actually sees me, which is awesome, right? God sees me. How many uh, parents or grandparents we got in the house? Any in the house today? How many of you? Awesome. That's wonderful. How many of you uh, have ever, uh, when you, you remember when your baby was born, you brought that, that, that newborn baby home and and uh, they had that, that newborn smell. Y'all remember the smell that newborns have, right? That changes quickly, but, you know, they have that little newborn smell for just a little while. Do you remember laying that baby down? Maybe that first night you laid them down in the crib or the little bassinet, and you just sat there and you just watched them sleep. Have you ever watched your kids sleep? You know, I, Levi's 17, about to be 18 years old, and he is so wonderful when he's asleep. And I love, you know, watching him sleep. You know, parents do that. You know why parents do that? Parents watch over their children because they love them. And the Bible says God sees. God sees you. He doesn't just see the mistakes you made. He doesn't just see the good things you do. God sees you. And like a loving father, 
God looks down on you. And he adores you, right? Even when you're not doing anything, so to speak, God looks at you and he looks at you with loving compassion because God really does see you. You're not invisible. You are valuable in the heart of God. And not only does God see, but we, we saw in this story that God told uh, Hagar to name her son Ishmael because he said, I am the Lord who hears, and I heard your cry. God hears our cry, right? God hears our prayers. God hears the petitions that we pray. God hears the silent groanings of our heart, right? When you're, when you're grieving on the inside, God hears the grieving of your soul. God hears those innermost recesses of your life. God is a God that sees. God is a God that hears. And then we recognize, not only does God see and hear, but God speaks, we said that God speaks in response, right? God sees our need, God hears our cries, and then God speaks, right? God answers our prayers uh, and our petitions with instruction, right? You ask for something and you, you share your need with God, and God usually doesn't, quote, just give you everything you ask for. He usually gives you an instruction that unlocks the provision of what you need. And God speaks, and we see in the story here in, in Genesis 16, God spoke to Hagar through an angel. We know that God speaks through dreams and visions. God speaks by the, by the Bible. God speaks by the Holy Spirit. God speaks through people. God speaks through circumstances. There are thousands of ways, really, that God can speak. And, and we even acknowledge the fact that before we were saved, before we knew God, uh, God spoke to us. And we actually heard the voice of God before we ever knew God. And it's that little voice, right? Whenever you were out there in the world and you were about to do something, you heard that little voice said, don't do that, don't say that, don't go there. And, and you didn't know what it was, and I didn't know what it was, but what that was was the voice of God. God was trying to intervene on your behalf even before you knew him or acknowledged him or honored him as God. Because he sees, he hears, and he speaks, and he does all that because he loves us. And so we said God's alive, amen? And not only did we say God's alive, we said, but God is at work in the hearts and the lives of those whose hearts are open to him. And we talked briefly last week that the reason there's so much chaos and confusion and pain and suffering in the world is that there are so many people that have hardened their hearts against God. And when you, when you harden your heart against God, you push God on the outside of your life. You keep him segregated and isolated and unable to work on your behalf. But God is a good God that loves you. And loves me and wants to work on our behalf. Look at that next point. We said that, that your response and my response determines God's involvement. It's, it's our response. Our response matters, right? It, it's, it's, it's God sees us and God hears us and then God speaks to us. And it's how we respond to what God says that determines what's going to happen next. It determines whether we're going to see the promise fulfilled or whether we're going to continue to drudge through life on our own effort, our own strength, and our own ability. And I don't know about you, I've done, enough of, uh, I've done enough life on my own to realize I don't need to live life on my own. <laughs> I've done enough life on my own to realize I don't need to do life on my own. I mean, I have a natural tendency to mess things up, right? I have a natural tendency to mess things up. Apart from God, I make very poor decisions and very poor choices, and apart from God, my reasoning goes out the window. Have you ever looked at somebody and you wonder, how in the world could you make that decision, right? I mean, it seemed like the most obvious, simple decision to you, but they made a decision that was totally opposite of the decision you would have made, and you wonder, how in the world could you make that? And then you have to watch them go through the pain and the heartache and the struggle and the repercussions of those decisions. And all the while, you knew the right decision because you were hearing God. But when you turn your heart against God and when you harden your heart against God and you're not hearing God and you're not inviting God into your life, all of a sudden something happens to that decision-making process. We begin to make decisions out of our selfishness, out of our greed, out of our pride, out of our arrogance. 
And we always assume we're better and stronger and smarter than we really are. Have y'all noticed that? We always assume that we are better, we are stronger, and we are smarter than we really are. Now, we think everybody else is not that sharp, but we're really sharp, right? Isn't that how we think about ourselves? I mean, we think, man, I've got this all figured out, I've got it all together. But the reality is, is without Christ and without divine involvement in our life, we are left to ourselves. And that's the worst place that we can be, amen, is left to ourselves. So our response really does determine God's involvement. Faith is always the right response, right? Faith is always the right response because without faith, we said God's work is limited. God's not limited, but his work in your life is limited. Why? Because God only comes where he's invited. And we all know the flip side of that coin because we've all rejected God at times. There's been times in your life, even as a Christian, where the Lord told you to do something, you knew what you were supposed to do, and you rejected it, and you resisted it, and you hardened your heart against it, and you said no when you should have said yes, and you said yes when you should have said no, and as a result of that, you saw and experienced a life uh, or a moment where there was the repercussions of a, of a life outside of the blessing and favor that God intended you and I to walk in. And so we have to make sure that we respond by faith, right? Faith and obedience always go together. We said last week, we kind of hung our hat here last week, we said faith doesn't guarantee that you get what you want. Faith guarantees that what God says will come to pass. And that's really an important element. We said you've got to settle that in your heart because if you don't settle that in your heart, you're going to constantly be frustrated and maybe even angry at God. Because we have this kind of Christian idea that if I live by faith, then God's going to do what I want him to do. If I have enough faith, then God will do what I want him to do. Well, faith is not a tool of manipulation that gets God to do what you want. Faith is a tool of agreement that connects us to God's word and God's promise and God's plan for our life so we can receive what he's already promised to us. So faith is not about twisting the arm of God. Faith is about getting into a place of agreement with God so you can receive what he's already promised. So faith doesn't guarantee I'm going to get what I want. Faith guarantees that what God says he will bring to pass. Amen. He will bring to pass. There's a great little phrase in scripture in the Old Testament. It's used over and over again. It says, what I've spoken with my mouth, God says, I will perform with my hand. What I've spoken with my mouth, I will perform with my hand. God will do what he says he will do. So faith is about getting an agreement with God so that God can do what he said he could do and would do in your life and bring to pass those promises. Because everybody here knows if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you don't always get what you want. But God is faithful to do what he said. And faith, again, is not about manipulating God to get what we want. Faith is about coming into agreement with God so what he has said can come to pass. And we said last week that what God has promised is better than what we want. Right? Because we all said last Sunday, we all said we all have had unanswered prayers that we thank God for today, right? Those prayers that you prayed that you thought you knew what you wanted and what you needed and if God would have gave you what you asked for, you'd be in a big mess today. And right now you can look on your life and you can say, God, I thank you for not answering that prayer and I thank you for not doing that there and I thank you for not coming through here because if you would have done what I wanted you to do, man, my life would totally be off the projection and the path that you intended for me. And so God loves us. Amen. Isn't that an awesome thing? Faith connects us to what God has. So let's look at our next point. We talked about this last week and we're going to kind of just drill down a little deeper into this thought. For today, So God-sized promises require a lifetime. God-sized promises require a lifetime of faith 
and obedience. A lifetime of faith and obedience. Psalms 105 verse 19 says, Until the time that his word, God's word over Joseph came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested him. The word there for tested means to refine as by fire. And we talked about how that patience purifies the soul. Right? That we have to learn how to wait on God. We have to learn how to be patient. So we said patience is not twiddling your thumbs. Patience is passionately, purposely doing with all your heart the last thing God told you to do. That's patience. It's passionately and purposely doing with all of your heart the last thing God told you to do. And until God gives you a new assignment or a new direction or a new path or a new purpose or a new idea that he wants you to walk in, you just got to keep on keeping on and doing the thing that God has told you to do. And through that patience, what does God do? The Bible says that God sent Joseph ahead of the nation of Israel in order to save a nation. And that God used his word. God's promise over his life tested him. The word of the Lord tested him. It refined his heart. It purified his soul. And we said that we have to be willing to let God do a deeper work in us because we've got to get bigger on the inside so we can sustain on the outside what God wants to do. And that's huge. It's that character that has to be developed. It's that integrity. It's honesty. It is a commitment to the principles and precepts of the Word of God that are unchanging and unmoving that have to be established within us. Because if we don't allow God to purify our hearts, then we'll never be able to sustain what God wants to do in our lives. So let's kind of take this thought a little bit further. Look at that next point on your outline. So if you're not seeing, I want you to see this, if you're not seeing what God is saying, then you're not there yet. If you're not seeing what God is saying, right? If you're not seeing God promised this and God promised this and God promised this and God made a financial promise here and God made a relational promise here and God made a ministry promise here and God made a spiritual, I'm believing for my healing, I'm believing for my breakthrough, I'm believing for my family, I'm believing for my, for my finances and God has given me these promises and I'm standing on these promises and I'm believing these promises. So guess what? If you're not seeing what God is saying, then all that simply means is you're not there yet. You're not at the place where the promise can be fully manifested in your life. So guess what you have to do? You have to make a decision that you're not going to quit, that you're not going to give up, that you're not going to stop believing, and that you're going to stay the course. Right? If you're not seeing what God is saying, it doesn't mean God's changed his mind. It just means you're not there yet. You're not in the place that you need to be in in order to receive the promise that God intends to give. And so what do we have to do? We have to stay the course. And I've got a little phrase up there, that next little phrase, long obedience. Right? I want you all to say that with me. Long obedience. Let's say it one more time. Long obedience in the same direction produces the promise of God over your life. Long obedience. How many know we like short obedience? Right? We're like, God, we've been doing this budget thing for a whole week and nothing's changed. I started tithing last Sunday and I'm still struggling financially. Right, Lord, we read one chapter in that marriage book and we're still arguing and fighting like cats and dogs. Right? Lord, I, I spent five minutes in the Word and in prayer yesterday and nothing has changed in my life, God. What is going on here? Right? 
We like short obedience. But it's long obedience. Long obedience in the same direction. You guys have heard me say this before. The only thing wrong with starting over is that every time you start over, you got to start over. Praise God, there's grace in God, right? right. You can screw your life up, and you can ask for forgiveness and grace, and you can start over. But every time you start over, guess what? you got to start over. you got to start over. you got to start over financially. you got to start over relationally. you got to start over spiritually. you got to start over in ministry. And all of a sudden, you spend your entire life starting over and starting over. But the key to experiencing the promise of God in your life is long obedience. Long obedience. I just got to be obedient in the same thing that God's told me to do because let me just say this to you. There are some basic elements of Christianity, and you've heard me say this before, that you never outgrow. You never outgrow. You never outgrow reading the Word. You never outgrow worship. You never outgrow prayer. You never outgrow the responsibility that we have to share our faith and, and, and evangelize the people that God brings into our life. You never outgrow that. You never outgrow the need for relationships. You never outgrow that. You never get so mature in Christ that you don't need other people. And so there are a lot of things in Christianity that you're just going to have to do forever. <laughs> well, forever is a long time. Well, as long as you live it is anyway. It is a long time. But it is long obedience. That produces the promise of God over your life. We've been talking a little bit. Psalms 105 was about Joseph. And Joseph started out with the coat of many colors. And he went through a horrible road, right? He went through challenges and difficulties and problems, betrayal and rejection. And all these things happened to him. And what we don't always realize is we don't always grab hold of the time frame of these things that happen. And so Joseph was 17 years old when God gave him the dream that one day his brothers and his mother and his father were going to bow down to him. He was 17. When his brothers bowed down to him, you know how old he was? He was 39. 17, 39, do the math, 22 years. Doesn't sound like short obedience to me. Sounds like long obedience. It sounds like long obedience in the same direction. It sounds like Joseph had to make a decision that he was going to keep on doing the right thing over and 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 over again, even when it didn't produce the right results. Right? He got all excited. God gave him a dream. You think, man, that's awesome. Everybody ought to be excited about God's dream for your life. Everybody but his brothers. They weren't really excited about God's dream for his life. He shared God's dream for his life. They got jealous and envious of him. They sold him, put him in a pen, sold him into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house. He does the best he can do there. He becomes an excellent servant to the point that he rises to the top of the ladder, so to speak, becomes the head of Potiphar's house until one day Potiphar's wife decides he's good looking and she wants to sleep with him and she entices him over and over again and over and over again he rejects her until one day he embarrasses her and then she comes out with this false accusation against him, accuses him of sleeping with her and having his way with her and all of a sudden Joseph did the right thing and the right thing and the right thing and the right thing and he went from Potiphar's house to prison and if you don't let the word of the Lord try you if you don't allow God to form character on the inside of you this is what will happen when that happens you'll change how you live your life so you'll, you'll go from this place because I've seen it happen over and over again and you have too We've seen people do the right thing and it didn't get the right result. 
And so they changed the way they did the next right thing. And so they started thinking, well, maybe telling the truth all the time isn't the best thing to do. And maybe, you know, maybe if I just compromise a little, you know, last time I didn't compromise at all, and I ended up in prison. Maybe I could compromise a little, and I could at least maintain my job. Maintain my job. Because i got to feed my family. And I know I'm not really supposed to do this, because it's not really the right thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, because, you know, I need to, if, I, if I just really do the honest thing, then I might, it, might, it might cost me my job. Let me just throw this out here. I'm just going to throw this. This is extra, and I can't get away from the Holy Spirit. Just keep saying it. So we, we have a whole culture now where, where we have people that are living together in sin, not wanting to get married because, well, if I get married, I'm going to lose this check or I'm going to lose that check. It's, it's more profitable for us to live together in sin and not get married than it is for us to actually get married because that's going to cost us more. See, if, if, if you're not careful, you'll move to a place like that. You'll do the right thing, and the right thing will cost you something, and you'll say, well, I'm not going to do the right thing next time because, man, last time I did the right thing, it cost me something, and I went from Potiphar's house to the prison. I don't want to go back to prison anymore, so, you know, maybe it's okay to compromise if it sustains my job, if it sustains my finances, if it's the best financial decision for my life. I want to tell you, sin is always sin, and sin always brings death. And making compromises just so you can sustain financial stability is always a death blow to everything that you're trying to do in your life. And it will not bless you, and it will not prosper you, and it will not help you, and it will not prolong you. It will keep you caught in a trap of despair and hopelessness, and you'll never come out of it until you repent of your sin or are willing to do the right thing because it's the right thing because God said it was the right thing. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So Joseph did the right thing, and it cost him. He goes to prison. Well, Joseph, you know what he did? He just kept doing the right thing. He just kept doing the right thing. He kept doing the right thing. He rose up through the prison ranks. How many know he rose up through the prison ranks because he kept doing the right thing? Till he was kind of the head in the prisoner. He was the head prisoner in prison. I guess if you're going to be in prison, be the head prisoner. And then he interprets the dream for the butcher and the baker, right? And then the Bible says, and then they forgot him. And two years went by. And two years went by. And when we find Joseph, guess what he's still doing? He's still doing the right thing. He's still doing the right thing. He's still doing the right thing. And finally, he goes from the, from the prison to the palace where he appears before Pharaoh. And 22 years later, let me just give you. So he goes before Pharaoh. He interprets the dream. Pharaoh sets him in charge of orchestrating. Because if you remember the dream, there were these seven skinny cows. There were these seven fat cows that got ate by seven skinny cows. Right? Which represented seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Well, once Joseph got in that place of authority and position, he went through the seven years of plenty, and then it was two years into the famine before his family came to him. So Joseph went from 17 years old having a dream and a word from God to 22 years later seeing the promise of God fulfilled in his life where his brothers bowed before him. And guess what? He started out as a prideful, arrogant young man that said, hey, one day you're going to bow before me to a man who wept over his brothers and wept over his family and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to save all of us. Right? Why? Because long obedience in the same direction is required. See, you're not going to get where God wants you to go if you're constantly changing direction. 
Now let me just give you a word. I wrote this down. I don't want to miss it. Let me just say it like the Lord gave it to me. He said, Keith, location doesn't determine direction. Location doesn't determine direction. Joseph went through five different locations. He started out in his father's house. He went to the pit. He went to Potiphar's house. He went to the prison. And he went to the palace. He was in five different locations. But guess what? His location never changed his direction. His location never changed his direction. And let me tell you why. Because he was setting his heart on God. The Lord gave me a great word this morning as I was praying. He said, Keith, he said, one of the greatest challenges we have in our modern-day American culture is that even as Christians, we start chasing the dream and we stop chasing God. We start chasing the promise and we stop chasing God. Let me tell you what happens when you do that. When you become so dream-oriented or so promise-oriented, right? When the promise of God becomes your God, you're in trouble. When the promise of God becomes your God, you're in trouble because this is what will happen to you because I know it will happen because it's happened to me before. This is what will happen. You get so consumed on the promise of what God said he's going to do that you start trying to help God do what he said he would do. Right, we started out in Genesis 16 talking about Hagar. Do you realize Hagar wouldn't even be in the Bible if it hadn't been for the fact that Abraham and Sarah decided to help God? We wouldn't even be talking about Ishmael. We wouldn't even be talking about the wars in the Middle East right now if Abraham and Sarah hadn't tried to help God. Abraham and Sarah had this promise from God. And guess what? When the promise of God becomes your God, you're in trouble. Because then you want to begin to help God do the thing that God said he was going to do. And Abraham and Sarah tried to help God and they birthed an Ishmael. And guess, let me give you a revelation from that. Anything you birth, you now are, have a responsibility to raise. And all of a sudden we start birthing things in the flesh and birthing things in the flesh and birthing things in the flesh and birthing things in the flesh. Why? Because we have made the dream that God gave us or the promise that God gave us, we have allowed the dream and the promise to become our God and we begin to pursue the dream and the promise instead of pursuing the one that gave it to us. Joseph kept his face set on God. He did not, even though there was a change of location, there was a never a change of direction. Why? Because he wasn't pursuing a dream. He was pursuing the dream giver. He was pursuing the promise maker. He was pursuing the one that had spoken to him and had spoken over his life and deposited that thing on the inside of him. And the reality is today for us guys, we've got to settle in our heart. Hey, praise God for the promise and praise God for the dreams. And I've got dreams and visions and goals and all kinds of amazing ideas that I believe God has said and spoken over my life and over this church. But at the end of the day, we better pursue him and not the promise. Because when I start pursuing the promise, I somehow get the idea that I need to help God. And I start trying to manipulate life in my favor, right? Because you see this little crack, right? You're like, oh. You, you, ever, you ever been praying for something? And all of a sudden, something starts changing in your family or in your finances or on your job. And you automatically assume this is the answer to your prayer. So you just jump into it with all your might and all your strength and all your effort. And then you realize this really wasn't the answer to my prayer. <laughs> And I just spent the last six months chasing something that didn't get me any closer to where God had called me to be. Because somehow I thought it was my will and I thought it was my idea and I thought it was my responsibility to help God do what God said he would do. 
but what God has spoken, God will do. Our job is to stay in a place of faith and obedience so we stay out of his way and allow him to work in us and through us and around us by faith and obedience to accomplish the thing that God wants to accomplish in our life. Let's look at this next point. I want you to see this. So long obedience in the same direction requires a big picture of a big God. I'm convinced most of our pictures of God are not big enough. Most of us have a very small image of God. And we're not seeing God as being as big as God really is. And if you're going to have long obedience, long obedience where you're going to stay the course, where you're going to refuse to change directions, maybe location but not direction, you're going to stay the course because you're going to be pursuing who God is and what God has said for your life, and you're going to stay that course, then you're going to have to get a big picture of a big God. Because let me just say this to you today. God is bigger than you and I have ever begun to imagine. And we need a big picture of a big God. Look in Exodus chapter 1. I want you to see this. Exodus chapter 1, it says, In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. So, Exodus 1 starts with Joseph's family has now made it to Egypt. Right? They've made it to Egypt. Joseph's dream has been, quote, fulfilled. His brothers and his father and his mother have now come and bowed down before him. He's in a place of great authority and great power. And now he's able to save his family. And Exodus chapter 1 tells us that when Jacob and all of his descendants gather together in Egypt, there are 70 of them. Now look at the next few verses. It says, in time Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And he said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. So, So 70 people grew to such a degree that they were now more numerous than the Egyptians. And if you read the rest of Exodus chapter 1, you find out that when the Egyptians began to fear them because they were growing in number, they began to oppress them. And the scripture makes this awesome statement. The more they oppressed them, the more they grew. What does that mean? It simply means this. There's not another person on the planet that can keep you from what God's called you to do. Oppression only produces growth when you stay in a place of faith and obedience. The devil's trying to stomp you out. All he's going to do is make you grow more and more and more and more and more and more and more than you've ever grown before if you'll stay in a place of faith and obedience. And then so, look at Exodus 12. So Exodus 12, the children of Israel are about to come out of Egyptian bondage. Moses is about to lead them out. It says, and the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for, so they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. And that night the people of Israel left Ramses and started for Sukkoth. And there were about 600 men plus all the women and the children. Bible scholars say there were on a minimum 2 million people. 2 million Israelites. So catch this. Let's get a big picture of a big God. Joseph went to Egypt. His family came to Egypt. There were 70 of them. When they walk out of Egypt... There's two million of them. Seventy became two million. Do the math right there. Seventy became two million. Why? Because Joseph was looking at Joseph thinking, hey, I'm the key to God's plan. God was looking at Joseph saying, you're a small part of my big plan. See, we get this idea that somehow we're the center of the universe. 
And somehow everything revolves around us. The reality is, is we are a small part of a big plan. We are a vital part, but we are a small part. We are an important part, but we are a small part. We are a critical part, but we are a small part. Why? Because there's a big God with a big plan, with a big purpose, and it's bigger than your 70 people in your family. It's really about 2 million people coming out of Egyptian bondage. It's really about 2 million people possessing the promised land. It's really about 2 million people spoiling the Egyptians, taking all their wealth, and walking into what God had for them. And you know how long it took 70 people to become 2 million people? 400 years. Just 400 years. So you think you're doing good when you got a one-year, three-year, five-year plan? God's got a 400-year plan. You're looking at one, three, and five. God's looking at, well, let's see, 400, 800, 1,200, 1,600. Let's see, where am I going to be in 2,000 years? So you need a bigger picture of God. You need to get a revelation that we have a big God. Right? We have a big God who's doing something bigger than you. This is bigger than you. This is not about you. It's about your children. It's not about your children. It's about your grandchildren. It's not about your grandchildren. It's about your great-great-great-grandchildren. It's not about your great-great-great-grandchildren. It's about your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. And it's not even about them. It's about their great-great-grandchildren. Because God's doing something big. And guess what? Long obedience. Long obedience. Long obedience. Y'all say it with me. Long obedience. Why? Because it's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your family. See, we get all consumed in me and my family, 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 me and my family. God's looking at a world. God's looking at generations. God's looking at nations. And we serve a big God with a big picture, with a big plan. And here's the good news. We get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of it. But in order to do that, guess what it's going to take? Long obedience. Let me give you our last thought. Wrap-up thought for the whole series. God's not dead. He sees our needs. He hears our prayers. He answers our petitions with instructions so that we can respond by faith. Now look at this last part because we're going to shift this thing, which allows us to get involved in what God is doing. We started out by saying that your response to God determines God's involvement in your life. But faith is not just about allowing God to be involved in your life. Faith is about allowing you to be involved in God's life. Let me tell you what prayer does. Prayer invites God into your world. Let me tell you what faith does. Faith invites you into God's world. When we pray, we invite God into our world. When we respond by faith, we get invited into God's world. God's doing something big. Guys, we are a part of something big. We are a part of a monumental movement of heaven on earth. We are a part of it. God is doing something so astounding, so amazing, so big, so giant, so, so, so overwhelming that it's going to take the rest of our lives to do it. I talked with a guy just a couple months ago. Kelly and I were at a conference and we were kind of sharing our vision for Liberty Church and what we feel like God's calling us to do. And, and this pastor, he said this to me. He said, well, well, Keith, he said, that sounds like something you could give the rest of your life to. The rest of your life to. How many know God's doing something so big that it's going to require the rest of your life? And you can't check out 
and you can't retire on God. Well, God, I'm going into retirement. Well, you can retire from your job, but you can't retire from, from what God has for you. New season, new position, new place, but you can't retire on God. You can't quit. You can't give up. You can't throw in the towel. Why? Because we're a part of something big. You're paving the way for generations to come. And if we could ever get a big picture of a big God, we begin to understand, you know what, when things don't work out immediately, that's okay. If I'm not seeing what God's saying, I'm just not there yet. Doesn't mean I have to get discouraged. Doesn't mean I have to be overwhelmed. Doesn't mean I have to change directions. Doesn't mean I have to throw in the towel. It just simply means I need to keep on doing the things God's told me to do until he tells me to do something different. I'm just going to be faithful. I'm going to have long obedience. Long obedience. I'm going to give my life to this thing. I'm going to give my life to this thing. We just celebrated a couple weeks ago. Billy Graham, 99 years old, went home to be with Jesus. Went home to be with Jesus. I, I did a little, a little uh, three-minute leadership thing on Facebook, and I talked about Mordecai Ham. I don't know if you know who Mordecai Ham is. Mordecai Ham is the guy that led Billy Graham to the Lord. See, when God was establishing Mordecai Ham, God was thinking about Billy Graham. And when God was establishing Billy Graham, God was not thinking about 99 years. 99 years, God says, man, that's a drop in the bucket. What do you mean? We can't do anything in 99 years. God was looking at 225 million people that were going to hear the gospel through one man by the name of Billy Graham. And God was looking down the road. God wasn't excited about, more excited about Billy Graham than he is about you. Billy Graham was a part of a big picture. Mordecai Ham was a part of a big picture. Mordecai Ham's parents were a part of a big picture. His grandparents, his great-grandparents, his great-great-grandparents were a part of a big picture. Why? Because God was doing something bigger than one man or one generation. Right? God was paving the way for the outpouring and the moving of the Holy Spirit upon the earth for an end-time harvest, which the Bible says it was going to come. And we get to be a part of that, at least to some degree. But it's going to require long obedience in the same direction. Let's bow our heads today. Father, give us grace today to see what we've never seen. Open our eyes by the Holy Spirit. Give us vision. Give us revelation. God, let us see a big, big God with a big, big purpose and a big, big plan. And let us see that we have a vital, vital, vital part of that. And Lord, today, may every person in this room settle in their heart today that we're going to give our lives to you. To following you, to loving you, to serving you, to doing the things you've called us to do. Lord, no matter what we immediately see, because we understand we're not looking for immediate results. We are looking for a lifetime of commitment that's going to produce the promise of God, not only over our lives, but over the generations that are to come. So God, release a long, obedient spirit in us that we would refuse to quit and stay encouraged through the storms and difficulties of life, knowing that you are faithful to your word. And we ask it today in Jesus' name. Amen.